This is chapter 9, please. I'd like to read the first number of verses here of this chapter. Believe it or not, in our study this year in the book of Genesis, we've made it to chapter number 9. And now we're just beyond the flood here. A few weeks ago, we discussed uh, chapter 7 and 8 and the flood and uh, the ark that Noah had built. But let me begin reading here, Genesis chapter 9, verse number 1. I'll read down to verse 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require, At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. You be ye fruitful, and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. God spake unto Noah, and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl of the cattle and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood, neither shall there be any more be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and the ever-living Every living creature of all flesh and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. I'd like to talk about this subject tonight, God's renewed relationship with mankind. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to share the Word of God tonight. I pray that you would help us to have uh, understanding. And uh, may you just speak to our hearts. Lord, I, I don't know the needs of each person don't know how this sermon really will fall. You've just had me prepare it. I'm to deliver it. But ultimately, the work that goes on, spiritually speaking, is really in your hands. And in your, may your will be accomplished through this. Thank you again in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, we have come through in our study through this worldwide flood. And we read at the end of chapter number 8 that Noah steps off of the ark after being on the ark for 371 days. Now, that's a long cruise, I'll tell you what. 
But when you think about Adam or Noah getting off the ark, you have to ask yourself some questions. And really, I've had these questions asked often. For instance, people want to know, well, what about where the ark is? Can we find the ark? Is there a place where really it is available for us to see and to kind of put our hands on and look at it? Well, I would have to say this, that first of all, I believe that the ark is no longer I believe that if the ark was available for us to see, guess what we as human beings would do? We would set that up almost as an idol and worship that. And it would be something that would be more important to us than God. But I believe that the ark really is not in existence because it's very possible that as Noah and his family got off, that they used the wood possibly for firewood, for building an altar, for going ahead and possibly building some homes. So really, that ark that was constructed for the salvation of his family, the Bible doesn't say, again, this is my conjecturing in all this, but it's possible that that then was torn down for the sake of using it for other things. But then also came along after the flood in the time that we're reading about now, that there are changes on the earth that were different from before. Now, again, I am not a big into science. I don't understand science a whole lot. It's probably been one of the hardest subjects that I ever took, either in college or in high school. But I refer to Dr. Henry Morris's book, The Beginning of the World, and he listed several things that were changes from prior to the flood to the time we read now after the flood. Let's note these things. Number one, the oceans were more extensive. Now they contained all of those floodwaters that had come in. Number two, the thermal vapor blanket had been dissipated. Now remember that firmament that was there over the earth that we read about in Genesis chapter 1? So that now with that thermal blanket gone, there were strong temperature differentials that were begun on the earth here at this time. Mountain ranges, number three, were uplifted after the flood and actually emphasized a much more rugged topography uh, that was unknown, again, prior to the flood. Number four, winds and storms were now possible for the first time, as well as rain and snow. Number five, the environment was much more hostile to man, especially because of the harmful radiations from space no longer filtered out by that firmament that was established, resulting now, if you read, all of a sudden we've got all these long years of living prior to the flood, and now all of a sudden you start watching the average lifespan is decreasing after the flood. Uh, Number six, tremendous glaciers, uh, rivers, and lakes existed, um, and pretty powerful thing here. And then number seven, the lands were barren until plant life could be reestablished through the sprouting of seeds and the cuttings that were buried near the surface. So again, these are things that Henry Morris pointed out that are now different from the time Noah stepped off of the ark. I'm, I'm going to say this right now. I keep wanting to say Adam. So if I say Adam, you know who I'm talking about, okay? It's Noah, all right? <clears throat> now, we didn't read these verses, but the end of chapter number 8, from verses 20 to 22, there's some interesting things that I think it's important for us to note. Again, I'm not going to read these, but you can notice, first of all, in verse number 20, Noah gets off the ark 
and he builds an altar. Now, we're very familiar reading in Scripture an altar, an offering made by a man, by an, an offering made unto the Lord. And here it is that as Noah steps off the ark, he builds here what the Bible shows to us, the very first mention of an altar that is built. And I think that, uh, I think when, you know, you say, well, what animals did he use? Well, go back to chapter 7, verse number 2, and is it not interesting that he took seven of every clean animal? And part of why God had him do that is so that when he stepped off of the ark, that every particular beast and everything, he would be able to offer that to the Lord. Now, why did he do an altar? Why couldn't he just get off to the land and and just step on the ground and go up and just say, well, thank you, Lord? Well, I think there's two reasons. Number one, an altar, an offering before God, oftentimes was done as something of giving praise to the Lord. There were certain offerings that we read about in the Old Testament economy that these offerers did it to be able to say to the Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your deliverance. And no doubt as Noah gets off the ark, imagine now, finally, after 371 days, stepping off the ark and being able to say, wow, we made it. God delivered us. God brought us through. But it was not only for praise, but the altar was built because Noah's coming before God and saying, all right, God, mankind messed up before the flood. The whole reason we had this flood was because of the violence and the corruption on the world. And now me and my wife and three sons and three daughters-in-law, we're stepping forward and we're creating a new society. And God, we need your help. And so therefore, they have this altar before the Lord. But then I want you to notice a second thing in these verses, ending verses of chapter number 2. It's interesting how God makes a promise. Notice the end of verse 21. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. Now what did God do? The flood. Now we'll read, we read the verses in chapter 9, and we'll point it out a little bit more towards the end of the sermon, but... Here it is, God makes a promise that He will not flood the earth in its totality again. Doesn't mean that God's not going to judge. We read in the book of Revelation, God is going to come and judge the earth, but He's not going to do it by a worldwide flood like He did here in Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 8. And so, powerful promise as made by God. And also in this promise, verse number 22 He shared that there would be a regular order of seasons. Spring, summer, fall. Some of you have come down because it's wintertime up north and you've enjoyed the, the Florida weather. But there's a regular order of seasons, the regular cycle of the day. There's the days and the nights. But then I love something that's given here. And I want you to come to verse number one. These first four words, and God blessed Noah. I like that. In chapters, the early chapters, God had come through and had blessed Adam. But now after Noah gets off the ark and sets up this particular altar and gives an offering to God, God answers firstly by blessing him. 
I don't know about you, but I want and I desire God's blessing on my life. It's important that we come before God with a clean heart and clean soul. It's important that we honor God in all that we do and all that we say. And people often wonder, boy, I just don't seem to get God's blessing. You need to honor God and you need to follow Him and His ways and God's blessings will come along. So now we're going to go ahead and just discuss two major things here in regards to this uh, God's answer of blessing Noah and how he renews a relationship with mankind. First of all, number one, I want you to notice this, the instruction by God concerning creation. The instruction by God concerning creation. Now, there's two things under this major point. First of all, I want you to notice God's regulations for the sustenance of his creation. First of all, notice in verse number one, the same mandate is given to Adam and Eve is reiterated here in chapter nine, verse one. What is that? God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, do these words sound familiar? Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Go back to the first couple of chapters. That's the same thing that God gave to Adam and Eve. They were to have children and they were to fill the earth. Well, now with just eight people stepping off the ark, it was time to go ahead and fill the earth. And so God gives us to them. But secondly, here in regards to God sustaining here his creation, he lets them know that there is going to be a fear in the animal kingdom of humanity. Now, the question is often asked, why did God put this fear and terror of man in all creatures? Well, probably two reasons, and this goes both ways. Number one, for the protection of animals who will now no longer be at peace with men. Because we're going to be reading here how now mankind is going to be taking hold of animals for meat and various things, but also for the protection of man who also himself will no longer be at peace with animals. But now notice the third thing that God sets up for the sustenance of his creation, and that is that animals were now for the first time given as food. Now the Lord informs Noah that meat is a part and can be of the human diet. But there's one restriction that God establishes here, and that is that Noah and all preceding generations are not to eat meat with the blood in it. Humans are not to devour animals the way that animals devour one another, while the blood is still pulsating in the flesh. And the reason for this is Leviticus chapter 17, verse number 1. In fact, hold your place here and let me just read that one verse, if you care to turn over, Leviticus chapter 17 and verse number 11. The reason God gives this is because of respect for life and respect for the giver of life. Look at Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh atonement for the souls. So really, there's two things that are noted here. And they're noted because when you look at two different words, there's two different words that are used simultaneously. In the English, we see two different words, but in the Hebrew, they're the same word. The word life 
and the word soul are both the same Hebrew word. In other words, this references here that soul capacity that is a part of animals, that is a part of mankind. And animals were created differently than the plant life. Animals had blood that flowed through them to maintain their physical body, had blood flowing through them to go ahead and maintain the function of and consciousness of the brain in order for animals to have that instinct and to be aware of things. And now, while the life of that animal in the blood was acceptable, as Leviticus talks about, as an offering before God to atone for the sins of mankind, God is saying, don't eat there with the blood. All right. Now, often people look at the change that is given here from the early chapters, uh, as far as the diet is concerned, and no mention of meat. You say, did Adam and Eve eat meat? Did, did some of the other patriarchs eat meat it's possible that they did no indication is given in scripture that they did but now as Noah steps off the ark there is a structure given that here's what you can eat here's how you ought to eat it and so this change is given but really no indication now it's amazing to me and I don't remember what diet it's called but a lot of people have gone back to this particular what they call this original diet And, uh, you know, vegetarian diet and all that. And honestly, you practice how you're going to eat. There's nothing in the Bible that says, well, look, if you eat meat, you're just a a slob. And and if you don't eat meat, you're just the biggest health nut in the world. Uh, The Bible doesn't really come through. The life is not consumed as far as what we eat and put in our mouth. The life, as far as a believer is concerned, is a spiritual aspect in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Now, we ought to care for our bodies. I think too much food, too much meat, too much of something can be a problem. And so I think uh, enough said as far as that's concerned. All right. Uh, Number two, as far as uh, God's uh, regulations here, is God now regulates for the supervision, not only the sustenance of his creation, but now the supervision of his creation. And it's interesting here how the talk of blood in diet is now carried over the talk of blood in regards to man's dealings with one another. And here in these verses we read about, and we, we discuss this aspect of what we refer to as capital punishment. That's very interesting here. As God spells this out in these verses that we read, neither man nor beast were permitted to spill man's blood. That's very interesting. Prior to the flood, you don't read of any provision of, of how things are taken care of. For instance, there was no means of punishment. There was no crime prevention as far as murder was concerned. And, and truthfully, when you look early on, we read about a couple of people who had murdered somebody. We read about Cain, who had murdered his brother. We read about Lamech, who very proudful and arrogantly said, I have taken somebody's life. Now, that's all 
here we read about that. And each man acted according to how he felt. But now, because of why God punished the earth and brought this flood, what did we read about in Genesis chapter 6? The violence on the earth, the corruption on the world. And so now God immediately establishes, here's how you're going to supervise one another. And that is that we're going to have things taken care of in an orderly fashion. And we see here that animals, as God talks about the eating of meat, that there's a care for the animals, that animals are more important than the plant life. But I want you to notice something here. God's letting us know that as far as plant life is concerned, as far as animal life is concerned, that it is mankind that is most supreme on this earth. It is mankind, if you will, that is of the highest value because man was made in the image of God. As we talked about in the early chapters, animals weren't made in the image of God. Plants weren't made in the image of God, but mankind was made in God's image. And therefore, he became very valuable. So valuable is human life that a payment of life will be exacted if a man or an animal takes a life. Now, I want you to look at chapter 9, verse number 5, and I want you to I want to just help with something that may seem a little confusing. The Bible says, Surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it. Now, notice this phrase, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require it. What is this referring to, at the hand of every man's brother? Well, the point is this, that God will require the blood of somebody who kills since the person killed is a relative of the killer. I mean, when you look at Noah and his wife, three sons, three daughter-in-laws, all related. But truthfully, the language that God bears out here in regards to not only Noah's situation, but all succeeding generations is this concept that all of us are related to Noah. And so therefore, when you're taking somebody's life, you're taking somebody that you're distantly related to. And you're taking somebody's life who's being created in the very image of God. And so according really to this Genesis account, the entire human race is descended right there from Noah. Now, God gives a command on really how to handle the situation if something arises. First of all, it's very clear in these verses that He's giving us a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not if you feel like it. It's not a little permission. Well, you just decide what you're going to do. No, there's a very clear command. Notice verse number 5, how God demands a punishment. I want you to look at verse number 5. Notice a recurring phrase, would you? Would you look at these three words in the first phrase? Will I require... Look at the next phrase, will I require it? Look at the last phrase, will I require Do you think God's just giving a mere suggestion about this? No, this is something God's establishing. It's a command, this aspect. And God, all through history, since this was written and Noah stepped off the ark, God has never reneged on that plan. God has always kept it in force. But I want you to notice something else about this particular command, and that is that this particular thing is given, as I've mentioned already, that because men and women are created in the very image of God. 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we looked at that verse early on. When God created man, He created man in the very image of God. And until human history ends, every man, every woman is really in the image of God. And so it's very important that we observe this. Now, looking at some of these things and concluding here that God has instituted capital punishment, the question really is, why did God put this here? Why are we reading about this and and kind of getting this grasp of God's instituting for government to go ahead and do this? Well, let's think for just a moment. Human life, number one, is so precious and so sacred to God that when murder is committed, the death penalty is in order. Listen to these verses in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 17 and 18. And he that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. He that killeth a beast shall make it good, beast for beast. Number two reason here of why this capital punishment is given is because the person who murders another being made in God's image shows contempt for God as well as for the man or woman that he or she killed. To kill another person really is to step over God's sovereign authority over life and over death. And when a man takes the life of another person, he really assumes the role of God by ending that life. Number three, capital punishment really provides a very appropriate justice. Number four, another reason why God established this is because capital punishment really is to be a deterrent to further problems. Any society that loses its reverence for life will not endure long. And we're, we're seeing that in our society here in the United States. It's amazing how things are happening where people don't value life. And when life is not valued that whole society begins to crumble. And that's why God instituted capital punishment as a very gracious restraint upon man's sinful tendency towards violence. Now, I know that there's a lot of people that will raise the issues and they'll say, well, look, as Christians, shouldn't we forgive? As Christians, shouldn't we show mercy in times like this? And you're absolutely right. Undoubtedly, these expressions are very important, but they do not necessarily negate the consequences of a person's actions. And although the Bible does teach here about the death penalty and all that for deliberate, premeditated murder, it's important really for all of us to remember the responsibility is the sole prerogative of human government. And I don't have time to look at it, but go to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. God has given to government, whatever type of government has been established, God has given government as a minister for God to protect its citizens from these type of things happening. Now, I believe as God has commanded this and as he has established this, this needs to be applied in a very reasonable way where there's no reluctance, where there's no unreasonable doubt. There, there is reasonable doubt here. And we ought to, if there is a problem in understanding this, then we ought to err on the side of mercy and maybe waive the death penalty. 
Now, I understand in societies where men rule and men are in charge, sometimes there are things that are not dealt with equally and what we would say fairly. Sometimes things are not done because of a person's economic status, social standing, race or political or certain legal connections that people may have and where people are above the law. I'm not mentioning anything about the news and all that type of stuff in case your mind's wandering that way. But, however, it's important that nobody, no matter if they escape something here on this earth, nobody will miss the very justice of God. God will take care of every wrong. And a government may mess up on things and may not deal justly. But I can tell you, in the end, God will make sure that every wrong is righted. So how interesting here, and I just encourage you to study this out, compare with Romans chapter 13. But I conclude this little section here with coming back to verse 7. It's very interesting that God gives a strong contrast. So he talks about the diet. He talks about how we deal with punishment here when blood is shed, murder takes place. And he reiterates here, here's the backdrop. Verse number one, want you to be fruitful and multiply. Verse number seven, be fruitful and multiply. Now, why does he give this again? I would dare say that Noah and his children probably had a lot of thoughts about how society was before they got on the ark. What was the the society all about? Violent, corrupt, exceeding wicked, imaginations of the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. And imagine now thinking to yourself, because I have heard this many times from young couples, Oh, I don't know if I want to bring any children into this society that we're living in today. I mean, honestly, we all look at our society, do we not? We think to ourselves, man, how corrupt this is. Those of you that are beyond 70 years old, you go back and you think about the glory days that you lived in and how maybe innocent things were in the times that you lived. Those of us now raising children and those of us that have grandchildren and we think to ourselves, wow, what a, what a wicked time this is. But I want to tell you something. God has not rescinded His command for all of us to have children. To go ahead and bring them in. God knows the society we live in. God understands the, 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 the times that we find ourselves in but how important it is for us to raise children for the glory and honor of God. Who knows if God might raise up one of the children that are born to bring about a revival in a country. To cause someone to be raised up to have a position of power to where they could influence a whole nation. And so therefore, God, through all of this, through the thoughts of Noah and his children of Boy, I don't know what's going to happen with society as we move along. No, no. Noah, be fruitful. Multiply. Replenish the earth. And you know, it's amazing when you look at these things that God gave here. The eating of meat, the abstinence from blood, the authority of government to enact the sword. Is it not amazing? God's not rescinded on any of that. In fact, you read in the New Testament, God basically repeats all that and reminds us that those things are in action. 
So now we saw that God gave clear instructions for His creation, but let's take a step further and let's see how God involves Himself in a certain area. So number two major point is the involvement of God concerning a covenant. Now I want you to look at verses 8 through 17, and I want you to see this special word covenant used seven different times. Look at verse 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you. Verse number 11, I will establish my covenant. Verse 12, this is the token of the covenant. Verse 13, it shall be for a token of a covenant. Verse number 15, I will remember my covenant. Verse number 17, God said unto Noah, this is the token of the covenant. Now, why is this word used? Why is it a very special word? Because really, through a covenant, God always reiterates and God always interacts with His creatures through a covenant. A covenant, the word that is related to the word covenant is the word to bind, something that is bound together. And when two parties come together and they agree on a covenant, what do they do? They bind themselves together by the covenant that they make. And therefore, it becomes a covenant relationship. A bond that is made between two parties. There are certain obligations to each party resulting in rewards or blessings or penalty or curses if the things are not followed through. Now, you and I make covenants in life. We might sign a piece of paper when we're uh, getting an employment at a particular job and there's an agreement we have with the employer. When you take out a loan to buy a home or a car, there's particular pieces of paper that you sign for a good hour. And it's a covenant between you and the loan company. A marriage is a massive covenant bond. Where two people come together and say, I do. And I still do. Amen. But that's, that's the covenant. And in the Bible, covenants take on a lot of different shapes and forms. In fact, you'll look through the Bible and you'll see that God made a covenant with Noah. God makes here a covenant with, with or Adam. God made a covenant here with Noah. God made a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, with David. And then we read in the Bible, in fact, our Bible is split in two different major sections. Can you give me what the first 39 books are, the old? All right. And then the last 27 books are the? All right. Now, there's another word for testament that we don't use. We call it testament, but it's the word covenant. In the Old Testament or covenant, God had a certain way that he was dealing with mankind. But now in the New Testament, God's not just dealing with the Jewish people. God's dealing with all of those Jew, Gentile, who place their faith in Christ. A New Testament, a new covenant. And it's amazing as you look through the Bible, as these covenants work their way through God is expanding His full revelation in His dealings with mankind. And it is beautiful, really, to see. God always relates to man through covenants. And really, there were um, this covenant here that God makes very interesting 
one thing I want you to see here, and that is that it was an unconditional covenant. I'm going to get to that in just a minute, but there were really two different types of covenants throughout the Scriptures. There were covenants that were conditional. There were covenants that were unconditional. And I'm not going to turn there, but you can maybe jot this down. Exodus chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. You'll know if a covenant was conditional because the word if will be used. The reference in Exodus chapter 9, verse 4, God basically says, If you obey me, here's what I'm going to do. If you don't obey, here's what's going to happen. And we know with the children of Israel, God made this conditional covenant. It was based on the word if. And the children of Israel, if they obeyed the Lord, there would be blessings that would be heaped upon them. But for whatever reason, they decided to disobey God. And now they found that things did not go so well. But when we look at this covenant, I want you to notice three things in verses 8 to 17 about this covenant that God made with Noah. First of all, it is an unconditional covenant. Now look at this. In fact, I want you to re look at these verses again and notice the words, I, me, my. God speaking to Noah. Verse 9, I, behold, I establish my covenant with you. Verse number 11, I will establish my covenant with you. Verse 12, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you. Verse 13, I do set my bow. You know what we get here? Right away we see that God is the one that establishes the covenant. Now, the, the covenants that we make before, my wife and I, when we stood at the, at the church, in the front of the church there, November 27, 1993, we both, her and I, together, made a covenant with one another. But what God is doing here is He's not including Noah and saying, well, Noah, why don't you, why don't you make a little bargain with me? No, no, God establishes the terms. God comes through and says, this is my covenant that I'm making with you. Some covenants in the Bible are two ways where both parties make these agreements. But this is not the type of covenant God makes here. God establishes this, and it's a one-way street. God is the initiator. God is the sustainer. God is the keeper of this covenant to the very end. And He will ensure that this covenant is carried out. It's not dependent on Noah at all. It's not dependent on Noah's faithfulness, not dependent on Noah's work. But here God makes a promise, and what's the promise, the unconditional promise? I'll not flood the earth. Unconditional covenant. Number two, I want you to notice it is a universal covenant. Notice here there's a repeating of the phrase, every. I'm not going to go ahead and take through, but you notice in verse 10, verse 12, verse 11, 15... Verse 17, there's this idea of every living creature or all flesh. All is a big word. Every is a big word. And since God appreciates both animal and human life, so should we. God has made this covenant universal throughout everybody. But lastly, I want you to notice it is unending. Look at verse number 16. The bow shall be in the cloud. I will look upon it that I remember, may remember, 
the next word, everlasting covenant. This is to be done, verse number 12, for perpetual generations. And since God is eternal, and since God does not shirk on His responsibilities, I guarantee God is going to continue this, and He has. And what is the sign that God gives to uphold the covenant? I remember when I stood there and the preacher asked me on that day, November 27, 1993, what sign will you give to show your love? And I had this ring that I gave to my wife. It was a sign of the covenant. What does God give as a sign to Noah and to every perpetual generation? The sign of the rainbow. When I was flying back from India... We were flying to Paris, and I happened to be in the exit row, and there was a monitor, and it was showing the front of the plane. As we're flying into the airport there, there was a beautiful, it was in the morning, and there was a beautiful, beautiful, full rainbow. And I knew I'd be preaching this message, and I thought, God, you've placed it there once again as a reminder that you will not flood the earth. And how impressive it is. I don't care what the crowd out in the world does in stealing the rainbow and using it and parading it around for their agenda. God is the one that established the rainbow first. And it is His sign of His covenant with all of the world that He will not flood the earth again. Valuable token, which symbolizes the invisible features of the covenant. Now, I want to close with this, and it's this last point, God's covenant with us here in the New Testament. You know, as I read about Noah and his salvation, it's a great picture of what God does for us. And in the New Testament, through the Lord Jesus Christ, God establishes, if you will, a covenant with us. If you will, to a certain degree, there's a a condition to it, but it's also unconditional. It's unconditional in this, that God sets the terms. When God gave salvation, God said, I'm providing the means of salvation. I'm initiating this. So therefore, it's not of you to give of your works. It's not for you to offer yourself. The only condition that is on this in regards to this particular covenant is that you have to, by faith, receive that gift. That's it. You have to receive that gift. But I want you to notice something else, and that is that the covenant God made with us here in this New Testament era is that it is universal. God has opened up salvation to the whole world. John three sixteen. how many people did Jesus come to die for? The whole world. God so loved the world. John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I love these words, I will in no wise cast out. Aren't you glad when you came to pray and receive Christ as Savior, God said, um, no, you're a little too bad. No, I don't want you. No, all that come to the Father, he'll in no wise cast out. But this covenant is not only unconditional, it's initiated by God, it's universal, but it's unending. I love the way the author of Hebrews argues about Christ's blood. It's eternal. Hebrews 5.9, being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. 
Hebrews 9.12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You don't have to fear something tonight that God is going to change the terms on you. You're not going to walk out of church and the notice be placed on the doors and say, God says, well, I'm sorry, there's not enough room in heaven for you. Too bad. God's not going to say, I'm sorry, but I'm writing you out of the will. Now, I'm going to tell you something. When the day that you asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, He gave you eternal life. And He'll never shirk on that. We don't have to fear that God will change the terms. And when Jesus Christ said from the cross, it is finished, He meant that the payment had been completely paid for. There's nothing to be added, nothing else to be done. It is accomplished and it is established forever. So what great reminders that God has given to us through this particular wonderful story of Noah stepping off the ark. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the blessing of being able to come together. Lord, I, I ask that you would just guide us in what we do, what we say. Lord, use us in a tremendous way to be faithful witnesses for you.